All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, that as we come to the scriptures, we are mindful that this is not a book written by men about their experiences with the divine, but it is your revelation, your disclosure of yourself through human beings writing to us and you overseeing the process so that they recorded exactly what you intended and that it is infallible and without error. Father, we are thankful that you have disclosed so much of yourself to us and that we come to understand your perfect plan in history as it is grounded upon the redemption of our sins, which took place on the cross of Golgotha. And Father, we're thankful that we have so many ways that you have given us to understand what this means, that we can have a greater appreciation for the love that you have displayed to us and for the riches of your grace that are manifested there. And Father, as we continue our study in Ephesians 1, help us to understand the significance, the meaning, the value of what we are studying. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to the next section within this opening uh, prayer or statement of praise. Eulogy is another term that I've used, a, a good statement, a statement of praise to God. And it's broken down into three parts, one to the Father, one to the part to the Son, and one to the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 begins the second section within this eulogy, which focuses on redemption and forgiveness, terms that especially redemption will show up again. The terms grace, words related to God's plan, words related to his will and his pleasure are all present in this section as they are in each of these sections. But as we come to look at this concept of redemption and forgiveness, one thing that we should be mindful of is that a lot of people just struggle with words like redemption because it's not a word that is used a lot in our current generation. And so it is a term that we have to take some time to understand and to see what the Scripture teaches about it, because it's a foundational concept from the Old Testament through the New Testament for understanding that which was necessary to secure our salvation. The other word is even uh, more difficult for people. 
we have an easy time understanding why and how somebody might forgive us. After all, we're really basically good, and we didn't really mean whatever it was that we did, and certainly we're of a great enough stature and nice enough person to where we should be forgiven. But when you flip that around to where it comes to forgiving other people, well, maybe not so much. We have a difficult time with the concept of forgiveness, and yet the picture for us as believers for forgiveness is what happened on the cross and what happens in our individual salvation. So we're going to take a little time to go through what the Scripture teaches as we focus on redemption and forgiveness. And first of all, we have to look at this concept of, of, of redemption. But since, as we look at the opening verse, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, we see that redemption is explained through this second clause, this appositional clause, that redemption is in some way equivalent or synonymous with forgiveness. That's something we have to understand. So I thought I would start with a statement by our Lord on the cross in Luke 23:34. Now this is a verse that many of us have not paid sufficient attention to. Jesus is on the cross. He is looking down on the Roman soldiers on the one hand. Uh, there were uh, probably those from the religious leaders of Israel that were there as well, those who were responsible for his uh, arrest, his uh, illegitimate trial, and his uh, execution. And he prays to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Think about this a minute. The word that we have that is translated forgive is one of two words translated forgive in the, in the New Testament. It is the word afiemi. We have the noun in our verse in Ephesians uh, 1.7, and it has the idea of canceling something, releasing something, letting it go. Uh, remitting. The noun means the remission of sin. Several times the gospel is expressed in terms of uh, gaining the remission of our sins, just another word for, for forgiveness or canceling our sin. And it has also the idea of releasing someone. Often what we see in the, in the scripture is the picture of captives slaves being released from their captivity or released from bondage. And so we have this word uh, at the very beginning, and it's a word that is not used a lot in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used a couple of times, and in Psalm 25:18, the psalmist prays, look on, prays, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all of my sins. Actually, Afiemi is only used a very few times translating various uh, Hebrew words related to forgiveness. And in Isaiah 61.1, a verse we looked at on Tuesday night in relation to its messianic implications, that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has chosen me. So the speaker here is the second person of the Trinity who is the servant of the Lord, who is the 
uh, Messiah who will come. And part of what is a, he states will be accomplished is the release of captives. So that's another way in which redemption is applied. It's the release of something. Now, when we look at what Jesus said on the cross, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, Christ asked the Father to cancel the debt of their sin, their hostility to him, their unjust treatment of him, their beating of him, the torture, the illegal trials, the illegal arrest, all of the things that were done culminating in his crucifixion. And he asked the Father to cancel the debt of their sin and what they are doing to him on the cross. I want you to notice that there is no mention of the perpetrators doing anything. They don't have to repent. They're not said to have committed any works, any good works, anything moral. They don't even express any faith in him as the Messiah. There is no ritual involved. Jesus just prays that they, God would forgive them at that time. Isn't that interesting? Now, that brings out a facet of forgiveness that I think is often overlooked. It's easy for us as we read through the scriptures to see that forgiveness from God is related to our faith in his promise of deliverance, his faith in the Messiah, faith in Christ's payment for our sins. It is related to confession. It is related to in the Old Testament to certain rituals and sacrifices. It is related in the New Testament to uh, trusting in Christ as Savior and in confession of sin. So often we may reach the conclusion that to forgive somebody, we need to base that upon their confession of sin, their admission of wrongdoing, uh, something of that nature. And yet Christ is asking the Father to cancel the indebtedness of their sin apart from anything that they do. What that tells us is that there is one aspect. There's, what he tells us is that there's more than one aspect to forgiveness. That is what I just described is one aspect of forgiveness. But there is another aspect of forgiveness, which I dis- have described in the past as the uh, legal or forensic aspect of forgiveness. It is an objective aspect of forgiveness where the one against whom the wrong has been committed will release the one who commits the wrong on their part for various various reasons and not uh, put maybe on the one hand put it in the Lord's hands to take care of it judicially on his terms in his way In another way, they are releasing it because when somebody commits a wrong against us and we are uh, hurt, harmed, offended, maybe we suffer serious and significant loss, our standard reaction is one of anger. It's one of vindictiveness, revenge. We want and demand that there be justice. And what happens to people who succumb to that way of thinking is that 
frequently this will fester in their soul. It is a product of their sin nature. They are demanding justice. They are really focusing on themselves and their own hurt. It is a form of self-absorption, and it is a form of arrogance because all sin comes out of arrogance. And so when we are bitter, angry, when we are filled with hate and a desire for revenge against somebody, often that comes from arrogance in our own sin nature. And when we can forgive them objectively and release that, then our mind is no longer going to be dominated by these mental attitude sins towards somebody. And we, in turn, then can... Uh, treat them objectively in love as a, as the scripture says. Not only do do believers need to do this, but in some sense it is imitated by unbelievers. Last Monday night, there was a one-hour uh, show on PBS about a Holocaust survivor, um, and her name uh, was Eva... Moses Kor. I had not heard of her before. Maybe some of you saw that last week. Fascinating story, rather lengthy story, but I will try to summarize it rather quickly, that when she was five years old, uh, she, she had been born in a, in a village in Romania to a family with two older siblings and an identical twin sister, and her father was a farmer, and they were the only Jewish family in this village. And when the Nazis came in and took control when she was five years old in about 1940, she was five to six years of age. It was not until 1944 that the family was deported and eventually ended up at Auschwitz. Because it was the standard practice for children of that age to be executed immediately, she was not because she was an identical twin. And so she and her sister were taken and put with another, a very large group of identical twins that came under the torture of Dr. Joseph Mengele. If you have not read much about the Holocaust, Mengele performed many heinous experiments in the guise of medical, medical investigation on a lot of different people with different maladies, but he was uh, also infatuated with identical twins, and so they were injected with different things, and this impacted their health at the time, and much later, both sisters survived. They went back to their original village at the end of the war. Uh, She was 10 years old at the time, 11 years old, and then she found an aunt who had survived also. When she became a, in her late teens, she was able to make Aliyah and go to Israel along with her uh, twin sister. Later on, she married a U.S. citizen who had also, who's also a Holocaust survivor. They came to the U.S. And she had a life that began once she got past that survival mode to exhibit this buried anger, resentment, bitterness that came out in many different ways. She became an activist, an angry, hostile activist for Holocaust survivors by the late 70s and into the early 80s. She angered uh, many other Holocaust survivors because of the way she handled various situations. 
She was responsible for starting an organization specifically for the investigation and search for Mengele to see if he was still alive. She did a number of other things, but she got herself in a lot of trouble because of this this anger, resentment, bitterness that she held in, this desire for retribution and for justice, which we can all understand with all the torture and everything that she had gone through. And then one day after some things had happened and she realized how she had basically angered and alienated almost everybody in her life because of her anger, she came to a point where she said, I just have to forgive him, and so she did. This really angered a lot of Holocaust survivors because they could not understand how she could personally forgive him. This made uh, news. This was well-known in the Holocaust community, but it transformed her life. And I was watching this the other night, and I said, here if we see an unbeliever who reaches this, how come we don't find believers who realize this, should realize this in a far, far greater way because we understand the basis for forgiveness of sin. It's not just an imitation of it, which is what an unbeliever does, uh, purely from selfish motives, so that they, uh, in her case, she wanted to stop alienating everyone. She went on, in fact, she's still alive today. She's about 84, 85, and has uh, had a tremendous impact on people who have gone through a lot of unjust abuse and mistreatment, things of that nature. But the bottom line is that this illustrates a principle in Scripture, and that is without the recognition of guilt or punishment on the part of the one who uh, committed the offense, when the individual lets it go in that sense of forgiveness, then practically speaking, that releases them from those additional sins that war against the soul. So what we see in the illustration with Jesus on the cross is this, what I have always called this first sense of forgiveness, and that is the sense of an objective uh, legal forensic forgiveness where they are objectively released from that uh, from that sin or that crime or whatever doesn't absolve them of consequences. That's the other problem Americans have with forgiveness is they think that forgiveness means the other person is absolved of consequences. And forgiveness doesn't mean that. Forgiveness doesn't mean that that if someone is a murderer on death row and they come to trust in Christ as their Savior, that the death penalty should be um, should be removed just because they are now a believer. They have committed a crime, they have been found guilty of a crime, and the punishment should fit the crime. It has nothing to do with their spiritual standing before God. It has to do with their legal standing before uh, the law of the land. And so they can be a family that has had a loved one murdered, may have all sorts of anger and bitterness and resentment towards them, and they can let that go, forgive the person in this sense, but not that does not mean you're releasing them from the legal penalties and consequences that may come their way. So this is a complicated subject, and to start understanding it, we have to understand its connection 
to redemption, which is stated not only here in Colossians 1.7, but it is stated in a parallel passage identically in, uh, in uh, Colossians uh, 1.14. So here we read, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, and that's the noun form of the verb we looked at earlier, aphasis, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, I will tell you, this isn't talking about the kind of forgiveness I was just mentioning. This is talking about the realization of the legal forgiveness in the individual life of each of us who has trusted in Christ as Savior. This is a second aspect, a second way of uh, forgiveness is realized in an individual's life. The context to understand this phrase in him comes out of Ephesians 1.5 and 1.6. It's interesting, as I have read through the entire Greek text of Ephesians a couple of times, I have marked all of the phrases where you have the preposition in, E-N, with any kind of object, and it is used a number of different ways, and at times it is has the sense of where it has this sense of instrumentality or by him. And it might be such that we would look at in him we have redemption as by him, but we have the instrumentality mentioned in the next uh, uh, phrase, through his blood. So in him really relates back directly to the last phrase in Ephesians 1.6, uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which, that is by the grace, he made us accepted in the beloved, that is in Christ. And then he says in whom. There's a couple of more places as we read through these 14, or verses 3 through 14, where one verse ends with in Christ, and the next verse will, uh, will begin with in him. This is a... Uh, a standard approach for Paul to keep reminding us of what our reality that we have in Christ. So in him, it's talking about our present reality in Christ. This is brought out further in the verb we have. It is a present active indicative of echo, which means to have, and it emphasizes a present ongoing state that is the reality of every believer from the instant of their salvation until the time that we are taken to be with the Lord in the air. We are in Christ. And we will, as church-age believers, always have that identification with Christ because the church doesn't lose its significance when we go to heaven to be face-to-face with the Lord. We continue to be members of the church and continue to have that close association with Christ. We have this redemption. It is our present ongoing reality and will continue forever. So this is our position. Even if our experience is different, if we're in sin, if we are in rebellion against God, we are still in Christ legally and positionally. Now, what we have in Christ that is brought out in this verse is redemption. Redemption. It is the Greek word apolutrosis, 
which emphasizes a payment. All the words, as we'll see in just a minute, all the words that are translated, there's eight different words translated redemption, all of them emphasize the payment of a price. Therefore, one thing we can say before we get any further is that at some level it always refers to a substitutionary payment, that the price is paid by someone else. And the price is paid here by Jesus Christ for the believer, and it has the idea of being released from bondage, from servitude, from slavery, due to the payment of this particular price. And so the word, as we see, as we will see, has to do with with being with that apa preposition being released from something that's always indicated there, but it always comes back to the payment, to the payment of a price. Now, when we look at the rest of this verse where it says, in him we have redemption, the next phrase is, the, the appositional phrase is the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's important for us to truly understand what's going on here. Both of these terms, forgiveness and redemption, are critical for understanding what is being said here. I have known people and have read authors and commentaries where people can veer off course a little bit because they misconstrue the core relationship here between these two terms. Often when we think of forgiveness, we think of it in very personal terms and in somebody, you know, telling us it's okay and that they have forgiven us for some infraction. We think of redemption in completely different senses. Uh, It may come close to the payment of a price if you're old enough to remember back in the day when you used to get different color different kinds of stamps if you purchased something somewhere then you could take that you would collect those stamps and you could take them to a redemption center and you could purchase everything from household appliances all the way up to school buses that's how Camp Penile got their original school bus. They got enough bonus stamps and people donating their bonus stamps to where they collected enough to buy a school bus, and that was their first first bus. So you could do all kinds of things with these stamps, but you had to go to a redemption center to pay the price. The price was those stamps and to purchase something. So this is the core idea. And often we don't see the connection between the two, but the reality is that the word for forgiveness has as its core meaning the canceling or being released from a debt. Wow, that's a financial concept. That's a, that's a banking term. That's an economic reality. Redemption has to do with paying a price to pay off a debt. So the core meanings of both redemption and forgiveness are very, very close to one another. And so what we see in any kind of appositional phrase, I'll talk about that a little later, what we find in any kind of appositional phrase is that the second phrase states the same thing again in a slightly different way that will bring out a few additional 
ideas or, or nuances. So we could truly translate this. In him we have a payment through his blood, the canceling of a debt of sins. That's important to understand that because it is not talking about personal forgiveness. It's not talking about the forgiveness that comes in our daily spiritual life when we confess sin and God forgives us. It's talking about the reality, the present reality and realization of the canceling of this debt personally in our Christian life. So we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about Redemption. What does the Bible teach about redemption? Like anything else, we have to start with the Old Testament because redemption didn't just show up in the New Testament. Redemption began to be talked about and demonstrated back in the Old Testament. And one of the things I try to communicate, especially to those who aren't here right now because they're back teaching Sunday school, is that one of the ways you can teach your kids about these abstract ideas like redemption and forgiveness is go to stories, episodes in the Old Testament that illustrate this. And what we find with both of the uh, Hebrew words that are used in relation to redemption is that they come out of the Old Testament Exodus event and especially what transpired at Passover. So we just talked about that recently in our Thursday night Bible class as well as uh, the series I did on the last week of Christ leading up to Resurrection Sunday last week. So I'm going to look at these, these key words. And these key words are uh, in the Old Testament, first of all, pada, and the second verb is ga'al, the noun is go'el. I don't have a slide for that. I just have the slide for pada. And it means to purchase or to redeem. It has the idea of the payment of a price to free from some state such as slavery, death, or destruction. So from the very beginning of the Bible, when it starts talking about redemption, it always emphasizes this sense of the payment of a price. And the thrust is to remove somebody from a state of destruction, a state of slavery or captivity. So it's moving them from bondage to freedom. That's always part of the nuance that we see in its usage in the scripture. In Exodus 13, which follows the uh, Exodus e- uh, event, the Passover event rather, uh, God is giving Moses instructions and he is talking now about the fact that once they leave, they have to have a sacrifice in relation to the dedication of the firstborn. And in verse 13, we read, But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. There would be a sacrifice. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your your sons you shall redeem. The first of everything belongs to God. And so that first illustration is you have a a new birth, firstborn of a donkey, so you offer a sacrifice to God because the firstborn belongs to God, so it's going to cost you something, and that is the, the lamb. And if you don't do that, then you break the neck of this newborn donkey. And in other words, that donkey is not for your pleasure, 
that donkey belongs to the Lord. There's a whole series of teachings in the Old Testament. The first of the crops, the first of everything is what relates to uh, relates to this, that it all belongs to the Lord because God is the one who has given this to you. And so in the feasts of Israel, the feast that honored this or focused on this was called the Feast of First Fruits, and that was the first of the crop, the very first, the beginning, the, the best went to the Lord, and that was on uh, was considered to be the first Sunday after Passover. So that was last Sunday, and first fruits was a picture of the resurrection of Christ. He is the first of those raised from the dead. So all of these images have something to do about teaching us about the work of salvation for us. In Exodus thirteen fifteen, two verses later, and it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every room, but womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. In other words, there would be a sacrifice when a firstborn son was given because that's what happened at Passover. God passed over those who had applied the blood to the doorpost because uh, otherwise he would take the life of the firstborn. And in Israel, no lives were taken but in Egypt, there was great mourning because the firstborn in every household was taken. So that's the idea there. In the second word, the word goel is translated redemption. Uh, Gaal is translated to redeem. Goel is the redeemer, and it emphasizes the fact that the one who redeems has to be in relationship to the one who is being redeemed. The best story for that in the Old Testament is the story of Ruth, Ruth is a story of a Moabite woman who was married to one of two Jewish brothers. The family was living in Moab due to a famine that had begun in the land of Israel. That always reminds us that Israel at that time during the period of the judges was under divine judgment. But later the famine ceased, and after the death of her husband and his brother, the two widows have a choice to make, and Ruth decides to stay with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and go to uh, Israel with her, specifically to the family's home, which was Bethlehem. And they are poor. They have been left without any male support. And so the practice in Israel that God had devised was that if you died, if a man died, and was without child, that the brother of that man had the responsibility, if he wasn't already married, to marry his widow and to have children that would be heirs of that brother. And that was called leveret marriage. So when they moved back to Bethlehem, uh, when Ruth and Naomi moved back to Bethlehem, there was a near kinsman. You'll read that in the text, and it's this word Goel. And the Goel's name was Boaz. And so she was to go to Boaz, and as the story develops, Boaz realizes his responsibility as the Goel, as the near kinsman, and he uh, marries Ruth, and their great-grandson is King David. So that connects, that's part of the purpose that that's there, but it typifies, or it is a picture of this plan that God had to provide redemption for those who are in a state of, of, of being lost. 
When you get into the New Testament, there's eight different words in the Greek that are used to to it, to communicate this idea of redemption. The, the first set are based on the verb lutrao and the noun lutron. And in fact, I'm going to go to that slide first and then come back. Uh, the noun lutron means the payment of a ransom in order to set free. The price paid for letting loose. So it has that idea of a price being paid, the payment of something. The verb has that same idea. It's the action of paying the ransom price uh, to liberate, to free from ransom. And so both of these words then are enhanced a little bit through the use of prepositions. So you have the word antilutron, which A-N-T-I is not anti-against. It is a substitution. It's the preposition for substitution in uh, in Greek, and so it's emphasizing that this payment price is a substitutionary uh, payment. As as such, it still has the idea of the of paying a price, uh, paying a price for or in the place of someone else. And then the at the bottom of the slide, apolutrosis, which is the the noun that we have here emphasizes the deliverance. That word, that prefix, apa, A-P-O, means from something. So it's emphasizing deliverance from something, that aspect of it. And it's emphasizing that the payment's been made to release a slave or to release a captive upon the receipt of the ransom. Verses for that word of Romans 3.24, Romans 8.23, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Ephesians 1.7, our passage, and also Ephesians 1.14. See, it's used twice in this section, and in Ephesians 4.30. So that's the beginning. Uh, Lutrao is used in 1 Peter 1.17, which again borrows on that imagery from the Exodus event. That's why it's so important to teach that over and over again, because that's the background for understanding what the New Testament is teaching. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not purchased, you were not bought with corruptible things such as silver or gold from your empty manner of life received from the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. A lamb without spot or blemish is the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for the firstborn. So now we come to understand that substitutionary aspect and that it costs something. It costs the life of that lamb that was without spot or blemish. A couple of other nouns related to this are lutrosis, which emphasizes the act of redemption or deliverance. In some places, it's even translated as liberty. And another noun, lutrotes, which refers to the redeemer or the deliverer. Now, the second verb that's used is this verb, agorazo, agora. You may have heard that term. You may have heard some people refer to as an agoraphobe. That's a person who has a fear of open spaces or the marketplace or going out in public. The agora was the marketplace in, in, uh, in the ancient world. That's the Greek word for it. And so the verb agorazo means to buy or purchase something in the marketplace. And so, again, we have the emphasis on 
on the payment of a price, and it was often used in reference to the slave market. So you will hear the analogy by many different people of being purchased from the slave market of sin. And we have this word used in a couple of different places. For example, in 2 Peter 2.1, where Peter warns about coming false teachers and says, but there were also false prophets among the people. That false prophets relate to the people in the Old Testament. And then he says, even as there will be false teachers among you. See, you don't have false prophets in the New Testament era because they don't have prophets in the New Testament era. That was a temporary gift. So you have prophets in the Old Testament, teachers in the New Testament. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. So the reference here is probably to those who are unbelievers, but they have been purchased. They have been redeemed. Just as I talked about these unbelievers at the foot of the cross who are responsible for crucifying Jesus, Jesus says, forgive them. Now, they're not saved. That's not a forgiveness for for saving. That is a a plea for a, a different kind of forgiveness for them, objective, but it is not uh, related to their salvation. So we have that taking place there, and also at the cross, they're bought. But it's not realized in their personal experience until they believe in the crucifixion of Christ for their sins. So they deny the Lord who bought them, these false teachers, and that tells us that all have been redeemed in one sense, that atonement, Christ's death on the cross is for all, It is unlimited. It is not the Calvinist doctrine that Jesus died only for the elect. And then we have an application in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought, you were redeemed, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been purchased where we don't own ourselves. We have been bought with a price. Christ owns us. We are his, and therefore we are to live in obedience to him. So then we have another verb, ex agorazo, and that word ex has the idea of out from. And so again, this is the idea of being purchased out from the slave market and to be completely and totally liberated from the slave market. And this is used two times in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us. He has bought us out of the slave market. He has redeemed us from the slavery of sin, I mean the slavery of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ was judged for our sin as the lamb who was our substitute. For the purpose, Galatians 4.5, to redeem those who are under the law. So we have been bought out from the slavery to the law, bought out from the slavery to sin. All of these are words that are that are important, and it goes back to passages such as Exodus 6.6 6 and others which use this word redemption also in relation to uh, the Exodus event and understanding how that applies to our individual, our individual salvation. So this is the Old Testament picture of redemption on Exodus 6-6. 
where God says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Redeeming them from the slavery in Egypt is analogous to redeeming us from slavery to sin. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you, and this is the verb ga'al, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Another passage that also uses the word goel, referring to God as our redeemer, he is able to do that as a kinsman redeemer. So when it says, do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, when he uses Goel there, that means he's not talking about God the Father. That's got to be God the Son because that implies the kinsman redeemer. This is why Jesus became a man is because a man, a human being, had to die in the place of other human beings. So let's just wrap up our study of redemption. It describes salvation from the viewpoint of a ransom paid on the cross for our salvation. It always looks at objectively in the payment of the price for our salvation. Now, I'm not going to go into all the debates that occur over this, but that is the foundational and historic view of of redemption. It is a picture of the human race as slaves born into a slave market of sin. And the, the chains come off, okay, because Christ paid the penalty for sin. The chains come off of everybody. So the issue isn't sin. The issue is faith in Christ. Redemption then describes the purchase of the sin slave's freedom. We're all born in slavery to sin. We are now purchased. There's, there's freedom. And then it concludes with the payment price is the blood of Christ. So this gives us the emphasis that we come in the next part of the phrase. We have uh, redemption through his blood. That's the cost. It is the phrase, the shedding of blood. It goes back to the Old Testament. I read one commentator said shedding of blood always speaks of sacrifice. Sometimes. He made a mistake. The first time you have the, term, the phrase used is in Genesis 9-6 in the Noahic Covenant, that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That's not a sacrifice. That's talking about a violent act of murder. And it would include more than just the physical shedding of blood. It became an idiom for a violent form of death, and this is why it is, describes the death of Christ. His shed blood is not the physical uh, blood that he lost during the process of the torture and the crucifixion, but it is an idiom from the Hebrew that refers to physical, and in this case, the physical death stands as a figure for his spiritual death. It is when he is separated from the Father during those three hours of darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m. that the sins of the world are imputed to Christ and they are paid for. It is that separation from God and on our behalf that pays the penalty uh, for sin.
So we've looked at the first part of the verse. In him we have redemption, the payment price for sin. Through his blood, that's the payment price. And next time we'll come back to look at the second part of the verse and how it relates the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this aspect of Christ's work on the cross. So many different words are used in the scripture to describe different aspects of Christ's work on the cross. Uh, redemption, uh, propitiation, uh, all of these different terms, reconciliation, but they all describe the many different ways in which sin had to be dealt with. This deals with the payment of the price, the payment of the penalty, that penalty that was assessed on Adam and Eve and their descendants the instant they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that at that instant they were separated from you in spiritual death, and Christ paid that penalty in spiritual death on the cross for us. Father, we pray that anyone who is here that's never trusted in Christ as Savior would come to a clear understanding of this great news of the Scripture, that our eternal salvation is not dependent on what we do, what we don't do, It's not based on our failures. It's not based on our successes. It's not based on any human factor. It's just based on what Christ did on the cross. He paid the price for us. And so the issue for us is are we going to trust in his payment or not? And the instant that we trust in his payment, we are given eternal life, and it is ours forever and ever and can never be lost. Father, and for those of us who are already saved, we are reminded that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are not our own. We are yours, and we are to live for you throughout this life to glorify you in every aspect of our life. Father, we pray that you would drive home these uh, truths in Christ's name. Amen.